Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i have been known to enjoy a very blustery day as we're getting quite a few of those now we head into the autumn months i'm not your disneyversity lecturer no, this week I'm a sentient candlestick instigating dinnertime sing-alongs and talking a bit like this as we watch through 60 films and counting. Thankfully, I'm joined by an animation academic who's so smart he eats five dozen eggs every morning just to fuel his own gigantic brain. I am, of course, <laughs> talking about Dr. Sam Summers. You like that, right? <laughs> That's a good yeah. one. What <laughs> Let me just finish this bit. Our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. <laughs> now you can come in. Yeah, it's the the thought of my head being roughly the size of a barge. It's quite upsetting. Also, if we're being honest, roughly the shape of an egg. <laughs> oh, come on now. Is that okay? Is that between friends? I could say that to another bald man. You can't say that to me. I'm sorry, I crossed a line. <laughs> How are you doing, though? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm good. Yeah. In the throes of the start of term. I feel like the, the introductions to this section as, as the weeks go on are just going to become a diary of what it's like being a university lecturer, especially during this first semester. You'll you'll get a lot of my... Uh, I think you'll just feel the energy of where I'm at. So right now I'm kind of excited, but also somewhat overburdened. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be busy. I imagine your first day of university teaching today... You entered the room by getting on a ladder in front of loads of shelves of books and you slid the ladder all along and you reached out for some books. That's how university works, right? I mean, I went to one like a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when my students came in, I was standing in the middle of a dark room with just one spotlight and I said, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to present your education. <laughs> and then you sang the rest of the lecture, right? That's how that Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you had a little bit of a warm-up, a bit of practice for your return to lecturing because this is our first show after our live show. We no longer have to plug the live show, listeners. Thank you so much to everyone who bought tickets and came along to see us. We had such a good time with that show. The episode is now up on the podcast feed of us talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit live at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place. Huge thanks to the King's Place team again. They are incredible. Wasn't that fun? It was fun. It was a right laugh. It was great to see a lot of the listeners in person. Uh, it was great to chat to some people at the end. And it was great to get like live reactions to the various... You know, My favourite bit of this podcast is when the weird stuff comes up in, in Lasting Legacy and Discarded. And it was great to get a, a room full of people's live reactions to that, to things like what Jessica Rabbit looks like in Disneyland. Oh, I've still not recovered from that. Absolutely horrifying, truly terrifying stuff. 
belongs in the West Wing where nobody ever goes. But yeah, it, it was really fun time. Thank you to everyone who came. And yeah, if you haven't listened to that, check it out. And if you think that sounds like fun, I mean, we don't have any other live shows coming up yet, but we'd love to do more. So be in the room next time. Come and join us. And if you came to this one, we'd love to see you back. So we've been teasing this, Sam. We're about to get into Beauty and the Beast. What's your history with this one? Do you go way back with BATB? as no one calls it. <laughs> as we've called it exclusively in our many WhatsApps about this episode, <laughs> because you can't type that out every time. So many words. Uh, yeah. But, but I do not have that long a history with this one, weirdly. So it came out before I was born, so I didn't catch it on its initial release in cinema. And I guess maybe, probably just age-wise, I kind of missed the VHS release window before it went back in the vault. I didn't really come to this until I was a bit older, until I was like 16, 17, and started going back to collect them all and make sure I watched them all. I mean, I knew the songs and stuff. Again, I probably encountered Be My Guest for the first time on The Simpsons as See My Vest. (laughs) Made with real gorilla chest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If I have one kind of fond memory of this movie, it's that me and Lydia, my partner, went on one of our first dates to see the 3D cinema re-release of Beauty and the Beast in whenever that was. 2011, <laughs> something like that. So what's your history with Beauty and the Beast? Oh, this is a huge favourite of mine. This is one, this was firmly in our VHS selection. I watched it over and over and over again. And I haven't seen it in so long. Rewatching it for this was such an eye opener. I'm so glad I've had the chance to revisit it in the context of all of the other Disney films so far because I think it's a fascinating mix of elements. There are sides to this film that I'd kind of forgotten about. There were things that were even better than I remembered. I'm going to have a blast with this episode. Even just like little, you know, those pure sense memories. Like Beth was on our Rescuers Down Under episode and she was talking about instantly taken back by like moments of I don't know tickling or sensory things in the animation or noises or just little movements of characters that are just so ingrained when you're a kid and watching these things on a loop and there were so many of those for me watching this one so I cannot wait to get into it and with that in mind I think we should do just that that is enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin This time we're heading further into the Disney renaissance and delving into a tale as old as time with songs as old as rhyme. 1991's Beauty and the Beast. It's impossible not to sing it when they give a tune to the name of the film. It's impossible. Beauty and the Beast. Here we go. Right then, Sam, after offering a peek behind the curtain at the live show of the fact that sometimes you remember to prep this bit and sometimes you don't, is this a week where you've remembered to write a plot summary for Beauty and the Beast, or are we just winging it this time? No, I, I did I did write it out, but I mean, it's a tale as old as time. It feels redundant. Yeah. If you have been alive during time, then you know this story. <laughs> So, okay, when her father is captured by a monstrous beast, Belle agrees to take his place as a prisoner in the beast's castle. Slowly but surely they fall for each other, aided by some enchanted household objects and hindered by Belle's scheming suitor Gaston. Will they fall in love and restore the beast to his human form? Yes. 
<laughs> Spoilers, whoa! Yeah, it is a tale as old as time. Everyone knows this one. Oh, I assume that just because it was such a big part of my childhood. But maybe, I don't know, maybe for younger viewers, this isn't as much as a mainstay, as much as it's a big film in the Disney Renaissance. Let us know. Tweet us and let us know what your relationship with this film is. But okay, let's get back into where we are in the Walt Disney Animation Studios catalogue. The Rescuers Down Under... Sorry, Beth Webb. It was an absolute flop. It did not do well. But Little Mermaid before it was an absolutely huge hit. This once again brings back Howard Ashman and Alan Menken on song duties. It's another princess movie. Were there high hopes for a return to form with Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, the production of this movie is an interesting one because you can really feel when you go through the story of how this was made where the Little Mermaid's success really starts to have an impact on the kinds of films that Disney are making going forward because Beauty and the Beast, for a long portion of its development, was not a musical, even. What? Yeah. There was a long stretch where, like, it was just going to be what looks like, when you watch the storyboards, quite a dull, like, period sort of romantic drama about a Beauty and a Beast. So, I mean, the production of this thing, obviously... Like all of these fairy tales, Walt Disney made a few attempts at it in the wake of Snow White in like the 30s, 40s and 50s. But the version that we know came to be in, in the 1980s and it was originally going to be directed by, well, actually, Jeffrey Katzenberg first offered it to Richard Williams, the animation director on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because they were so impressed with the work that he did on that film. But Williams didn't fancy it. He was too busy working on his still unfinished, as of Williams' death, masterpiece, The Thief and the Cobbler, uh, sort of aided and abetted by Disney. But he passed this on to one of his protégés, a guy called Richard Pardham, who, like Williams, worked in London. So they brought a bunch of Disney artists like Glen Keane over to London to develop the art for this movie. And... It wasn't, like I say, it wasn't a musical at all. And when you watch these animatics, it feels very stiff, especially next to The Little Mermaid. I think a lot of these kind of deleted concept arts and storyboards are on Disney Plus for you to watch. So when Katzenberg saw it, he scrapped the whole thing. He kind of got rid of, I think it was more or less amicable, but got rid of Richard Pardham and started fresh with Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, the new directors back in Burbank. So when Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise's names popped up as directors at the end of the film, I was like, who the hell are these guys? These both sound like made-up names. Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise? <laughs> they definitely sound made up. Who were these guys? Had they been in the Disney system for a while? <laughs> That's a great way to put it, in the Disney system. Had they been part of the machine for a while? <laughs> they met in the story department on Oliver and Company, both on one of their earliest jobs for Disney. But they were moved off feature films to work on animation for attractions at Epcot and things like that. Like little pieces of animation that you could put in the theme parks for rides. And Katzenberg took notice of their work on these projects, thought it came out quite well and thought they'd make good feature directors. Which, that is a pretty good eye for talent. Again, we'll give Katzenberg quite a bit of flack. But if you see these guys making cartoons for Epcot rides and you think, oh, they could make a movie. That's pretty good foresight, and... I don't know, that still sounds like a wild decision fueled by Diet Coke that just happened <laughs> oh, to turn out right. It is a wild decision. I mean, initially they were pointed on there as acting directors, so I almost think 
they were just meant to be caretakers while Katzenberg found someone else, but everything kind of clicked into place. Um, and they ended up working very well with the producer, who's a guy called Don Hahn, and this is his first production credit. And he'd worked with Richard Williams as an associate producer on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was already producing the non-musical version before Trousdale and Wise came on, and he would go on to be one of the most important figures in the Renaissance as well. He produced The Lion King as well as other movies. And now he works, he kind of runs, I think, the Disney archive, or at least plays a big role in the Disney archive and writes a lot of books using that kind of material. So yeah, Don Hahn's a pretty cool guy. Well... You've mentioned that there were previous versions of this and that it had been hanging around for a while. I presume it was part of Walt's big list of fairy tales that one day he'd get to. Can you tee up a bit of where that fairy tale comes from? This is a French fairy tale, right? And hence all the French names. But how far back does this go? This isn't a grim fairy tale. It's like a slightly different era of fairy tales, is it? I mean, it's a tale as old as time, Ben. (laughs) We're going to get to that a lot in this episode. (laughs) It's a tale as old as time for as long as humans, dinosaurs, any kind of creatures have existed. (laughs) Actually, if you go back and watch Fantasia and watch the dinosaur bits of Fantasia in the background, you can actually see this tale being told. It's that old. (laughs) That's time. Even before the dinosaur bits, in the bits where it's just like cells subdividing, (laughs) you can see beauties and beasts. There it goes, floating on by. Yeah, having a little dance. Yeah, there have been versions of this, what you might call animal bridegroom narratives, all the way throughout the history of storytelling, all over the world, on every continent. The version that they went to for this movie, like the most famous French version, is a literary fairy tale that was written down by a woman called Gabrielle Suzanne Bob... Right, start this again. Pronunciation. Okay, I'm Lumiere. Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeur de Villeneuve in 1740. <laughs> Nailed I can it. only do the French accent if I'm Lumiere. <laughs> <laughs> so that was written down then by her, and it was plagiarised and abridged by a woman called Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont 16 years later, a year after Villeneuve died. So her version, that later version by de Beaumont, is more famous, and that's the version credited as the source for this film. And it actually does get an on-screen credit in the French version of the movie, not in the American version. It's merely suggested by France de Villeneuve. De Beaumont, France. (laughs) It's like Oliver, the Oliver song all over again. (laughs) So that's kind of the direct literary antecedent of this film. But you've also got to think about other versions of Beauty and the Beast that had popped up in the meantime. So like a really big influence on the movie is the Jean Cocteau film, La Belle et la Bête, from 1947. And basically the two main departures from the fairy tale in the Disney movie are the evil suitor character, the Gaston character, and the enchanted living household objects. And both of those are present, albeit in quite different forms, in the Jean Cocteau films. So you have to imagine that that was a big inspiration on this as well. Okay, well that is a bunch of setup. There's so much context in this film. We still have a couple of things to touch on before we get into the film itself. Let's talk briefly about Howard Ashman, because there is a tribute to him at the end of this film. Him and Alan Menken were a huge part of the success of The Little Mermaid. They're a huge part of the success of this film with their song contributions. But Howard Ashman died during production on this film. That is where you get that 
tribute to him at the end. So uh, I'm sure we're still going to be talking about Howard Ashman when we do Aladdin because they have songs that he had contributed to for Aladdin. We'll talk about him a bit later in this episode as well, I'm sure. But let's just talk a little bit about Howard Ashman now and, and how that comes into play with the making of this film and his passing before it even arrived. So yeah, around the time that Trousdale and Wise started working on the movie, Katzenberg decided probably based on the success of The Little Mermaid, that this should be a musical, and he brought on Ashman and Menken, who were already busy working on songs for Aladdin. That was Ashman's passion project. We'll talk about that next time. But that was the movie that they thought they were going to go into production on next, those two songwriters. But Katzenberg thought that they needed that Ashman and Menken touch on this movie, so he brought them on. But by this time, Howard Ashman was suffering with AIDS. So he had to go to Jeffrey Katzenberg and he didn't want to. He wanted to keep this private because AIDS was still a very controversial and misunderstood subject at the time. And he thought that there would be fallout from a person who at this point is primarily known for working on children's movies at this family-friendly company being publicly known to have HIV and AIDS. So he was very reluctant to tell Katzenberg, but when he did, Katzenberg said... To his credit, he would keep it completely secret and he would move all of the production or a lot of the production, a lot of the kind of creative side of the production to New York to accommodate Howard Ashman, which is a big move and which, you know, especially considering a lot of the people who were being moved to New York didn't understand and had questions about why they were being sent literally across the entire country to meet with one guy. So... Again, I think to Katzenberg's credit, he seems to have, by all accounts, handled this situation very well. But yeah, you have to, when you listen to the songs in this movie, when you watch this movie, because, you know, Ashman didn't just write the songs like on Little Mermaid, he had a huge influence on the very fibre of the film in a lot of ways. You have to understand it as a movie where one of its key contributors was dying of AIDS, literally writing some of these songs essentially on his deathbed from hospital with Mencken by his side, you know? So it's it's a really tragic story. Ashman did not survive to see the finished film. And the last time most of his collaborators on the film came to see him, it was to tell him how well the preview screenings of the film were being received. The detail I like is that I think it was his mother who addressed him in a Beauty and the Beast sweatshirt for when these guys came to visit. These songs incredible his work is incredible i think you already feel how much influence howard ashman and alan menken together but howard ashman is a major part of that had on the studio on these movies on how disney would operate for years and really it's within such a short span of films of the little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin as you say and also the song that they wrote for Oliver and Company. In that small amount of time, the impact that these guys had and that Howard Ashman had is incredible. And it's wild to think of them basically squeezing these songs in the middle of them working on Aladdin. Like, you're rushed onto this other project and the stuff that they're writing here is just mind-blowing. I can't wait to talk about the songs in this film And to think of the circumstances that Ashman was in with his health during that time, the emotional place that he was in, these songs are so potent anyway. It just adds an extra emotional potency 
he is an incredible part of this story and as we said when we did the little mermaid episode if you're interested at all in howard ashman's work in his life there is an excellent documentary on disney plus called howard that is all about his life and his contributions and as you say sam it sounds like katzenberg was as supportive as he could have been to ashman at that time with how the world was reacting to hiv and the aids crisis but also the Howard documentary is taking a much more modern approach to celebrating this guy's life and his contributions. Amazing work from Ashman and Menken here. Just before we get into talking about that and the rest of the film, I have another quick musical note. See what I did there? Uh, in oh, that yeah. the end of this film, we have a cover of Beauty and the Beast, the song. That is sung by Celine Dion, and somebody else, Sam, whose name I think you've made up, Peebo Bryson. Who the hell is Peebo Bryson? Uh, but is this the first in the era of having pop covers of the songs at the end of the movie? Had that happened for Little Mermaid? Yeah, it seems to be. It, it definitely didn't happen in, in the movie of Little Mermaid. I, I know that Peter Andre has recorded a version <laughs> of Kiss the Girl, which must have been for a re-release. That's the one that always jumps to my mind. Yeah, so I think they went back and did a lot of them retroactively for DVDs and things like that. But yeah, most of the the Renaissance movies have those classic, in air quotes, renditions. I think the Elton John version of Can You Feel the Love Tonight from Lion King, the pop version, that's a classic. What else is there? Michael Bolton did Go the Distance for Hercules. Uh, Christina Aguilera did Reflections in Mulan. All for One did Someday in Hunchback of Notre Dame. You're missing the most important one, which is Weezer did a cover of Lost in the Woods for Frozen 2, which we saw that together <laughs> at a press screening, actually. The film had not really screened anywhere. There was no information about this stuff. And we were sat through the credits, as we do with these films. And I turned to you and I was like, this is Weezer. They're playing Weezer, who, for context, everyone, Weezer is my favourite band. And yeah, I was stunned sat during the credits for Frozen 2. So that clearly is the the domino effect here is that Celine Dion and whoever the hell Peebo Bryson is do a cover of Beauty and the Beast for Beauty and the Beast. And nearly 30 years later, we get an excellent Weezer cover of Lost in the Woods. I'm very thankful for it. And I'm very thankful I was there to experience you discovering that Weezer song in real time. We've spoken so much about this film already without actually talking about the film itself. Let's get on with this thing. Sam, do you know a tale as old as time? A song as old as rhyme? Because I think it's time to talk. Beauty and the <laughs> Beauty and the Peace. Oh, that was horrifying. <laughs> I'm keeping all the vocals in. All right, good. Okay, so something I said earlier in this episode, a long, long time ago was that when I rewatched Beauty and the Beast, which I've seen so many times but hadn't seen in a long time before I rewatched it for the pod, is that there were elements of this film that I kind of hadn't really remembered or hadn't registered in the way that they obviously do now. And one of those things was just the incredible opening of this film. How lavish it looks, how inspired it feels by Sleeping Beauty... Partly with it, yes, being another princess story, but with how gothic and spooky this tale is, that's the tone that we go into. It has a grand tone in the way that Sleeping Beauty did. It doesn't have that kind of cosy castle princess feel. It has a big, imposing tone right from the beginning. The kind of austere nature of the stained glass storytelling even just that some of the visual style feels like it is drawn from stained glass windows, which 
then very much feeds into the visual style of something like Sleeping Beauty. So all of this stuff was swirling around and you have that incredible, incredible score, that really spooky, melancholic music bringing us into the world of this film. That atmosphere just hit me straight away in a way that obviously I knew those visuals and that music, but I'd never felt it in that way before. Yeah, that that score is so good for that prologue. I think Alan Menken is obviously a really celebrated songwriter. I think he might be underrated as a composer. Like, the actual score for some of these movies that he's contributed to, like, I would put Hercules in there, I would put Hunchback of Notre Dame in there, as well as this, are just so epic and grandiose, and he really captures that large-scale sense of wonder that these stories in, in the rest of the film also inspire. And I have to mention, because Lydia pointed this out to me like a minute before we started recording when I was prepping by having the prologue on, that that music, that piano line, is an homage to Aquarium by a French composer called Camille Saint-Saëns. Saint-Saëns. Camille Saint-Saëns. Saint-Saëns. Yeah, so I had to put that in there. Thank you, Lydia. I would never have got that, but it is, when I looked it up, it is a piece of music I've heard a lot, and it is very reminiscent of this. And yeah, the the animation here matches. Obviously, you've got the the gothic stained glass windows, which in its kind of two-dimensionality, operating on that flat plane, echoes a lot of Sleeping Beauty's visuals as well. And that first shot, I'm going to call it an air quotes, a multi-plane shot, even though it will have been made using caps, feels like a tooled-up version of Snow White's opening. Like, it's a very similar composition in terms of, like, the location of the castle in the middle of this forest and the camera moving towards it, but the shot is so much denser and there are so many more layers to it, which feels like, oh yeah, we did this. It's like doing Snow White again, but for caps. It's the digital version of that. Let's bring you into this fairy tale world using all the tech we have at our disposal. And all this classic Disney imagery. There's a castle, there's a forest, there's a deer for crying out loud. (laughs) It just feels like so many of those old Walt movies mashed together. That's the thing. I think so many parts of this film, but especially this opening, it's like a Disney mega mix, but in a classy, classic sense. Again, it's coming back to this idea of when we talk about the Disneyfication of things, we talk about things being cosy and being safe. And I don't think the opening of this film feels that way, and yet it feels like classic Disney. It feels like it's harking back, as you say, yes, to bits of the first five features, but also to Banger's era Disney in a big, big way. And you're talking about caps allowing you to do a tooled-up version of the multiplane shots that we got in the early Disney features. I also just was struck in the stained glass sequence of how textured that stuff was that even as beautiful as the stained glass stuff is those aren't block colors there is texture and light applied to every bit of that painting i I mean i was just stunned watching this on my big tv and just drawn in by the imagery so much. Imagine watching it in 3D conversion in a cinema in 2011. <laughs> yeah, how was that? It was okay. I mean, you go, you go for the, <laughs> you go for the chandelier sequence. You go for the ballroom, which we'll get to. That's when it really comes yeah. into its own. Yeah. I bet it was good for the thing that wraps up this opening sequence is 
we get that kind of zoom out of the 3D castle. And again, oh god, the castle covered in moss and it's so spooky and it feels like, I don't know, Crimson Peak. It's pure gothic romance stuff right there. It's lit by the lightning crashing in the background. Oh man. It's a goth's delight. I bet teenage you loved this when you saw it properly for the first time. Uh, but again, you're talking about the 3D conversion. There are bits of 3D visuals in this film in a major way, which we will talk about. But also there's just, a, I think, a depth to the imagery that isn't even actually 3D. I think you feel in those shots of the castle. My only criticism of this intro, though, Sam, is that I don't really know how this curse works. I don't know if it was... It was quite late when I was watching the film. I don't know if I just wasn't taking in the information properly. But the prince denies the old lady at the door because she's old and he doesn't like her and he's judged her by her looks and so he doesn't want her in the castle she curses him with a rose the petals from the rose are going to fall and then the transformation will be permanent but it says the rose lasts until he's 21 or it lasts for 21 years so how old is the prince how much time has passed how does this curse work yeah okay so it does say, and I noticed for the first time ever this time round when I watched it, that it does say it's going to last till his 21st birthday. So he is literally a teenager when he opens that door. It's a teenager opening the door on an old woman and he's like, I don't know you. <laughs> Please don't come in the castle. I mean, that's what you would want a child to do, right? If you left your kid alone and an old woman comes to the door asking to be let in and wants to sell you a rose, you would want them to shut the door. <laughs> Snow White taught us that. When old right. women come offering plants, you get the hell out of there. But you just strap in because there is an indication later in the movie about how much time has passed since the curse was first set. Lumiere specifically says in the lyrics to Be Our Guest that it's been ten years. He does say that. What? So the prince is what's supposed to be ten years ten. old at the start? <laughs> ten or eleven years old, yeah. So... There's so many questions. Like, one, why is he alone in this castle at the age of 10 if he's the prince? Have his parents, the king and queen, like, left and died or something? Is he? Would that not make him the king if his parents were dead? There's so many questions. I mean, also, you see a picture. You see the painting of him before he gets turned into a beast, and he looks the same age as he does when he gets restored. That is not a 10-year-old boy in that painting... That's why I was like, oh, maybe it means the curse lasts for 21 years and then, what, he's in his mid-30s, but then Lumiere says it's been 10... It doesn't make sense. I hate to be the person to say, hey, this Disney curse slash wish doesn't really hold up to logical scrutiny, but this in no way makes any sense. So in my mind, I'd kind of just headcanoned it that time stops. The enchantment stops these people aging, Okay. And the main reason why I got that in my head is because, one, nobody in the town seems to know about the castle or the prince. There's no sense that, like, their prince has been missing for ten years. So I figured maybe they'd been like that in kind of frozen in time for, like, a hundred years. Plus, you've got Chip, who comes off as, what, like, three, four years old? And if it's been ten years, that means he was either frozen at that age or he was born while Mrs. Potts was a teapot. And both of those raise weird questions. But if time has frozen for them, how will they know when the prince's 21st 21. birthday is? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? 
there's going to be no answers to this stuff. We're going to talk ourselves around. We could talk for two hours about how the timelines here really don't add up. What is he the prince of? What is he even the prince of? <laughs> the prince of France? He's not the he can't be the prince of France. He's just he's just a rich guy who lives in this castle. No one acknowledges the fact that he's a prince. That doesn't make sense either. That he's a prince, let alone the fact that a lot of the design and fashions would indicate that this takes place after the French Revolution. So he would he would be dead. Wow. I mean, I don't know any of my French revolutions. There was more than one, I think. That's uh-huh. about as much as I know. I should probably go and see Les Mis at some point and get a bit of history from that. Because uh, all of my history has to come from pop culture. That's the rule. Anyway, before we burrow down a rabbit hole of time, which we will never escape from, that's our very own curse. Sam, if we don't finish this podcast before the last petal falls from this rose, we're going to be trapped in Squadcast forever. Uh, (laughs) So I think we'd better get on and talk about Belle, in every sense, because Belle is our main character in this film. Essentially, she is our heroine, our latest Disney princess, and she's introduced in a song also called Belle, which is an absolute belting number as we teed up in the little mermaid episode that film begins with fathoms below it's like a tonal place setting song but that is very truncated this is an all-out broadway style musical number introducing us to bell but also introducing us to all the townsfolk who she lives with how they see her how she operates what she wants it's so many things in one in this incredibly catchy musical number that also is filled with some of the most ambitious animation we've seen in any of these films so far i mean you're talking about tracking shots and caps the opening shot of the bell sequence is like a tracking shot of her leaving the house and entering the town, and it's stunning. And the the density of the characters as well. Like, when you see this many human characters on screen in a movie like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, they're usually kind of painted onto the background or barely moving at all, and here we've got all of these moving characters, all of them are singing, all of them have, like, different voices and different actions they've got to carry out, different choreographies... It's such a bravura sequence. It does such a great job of setting the tone. It really realises Howard Ashman's intentions for Fathoms Below in The Little Mermaid that was going to be this long, sustained kind of operetta that introduces us to this world and these characters. And it's so efficient. Like, it cycles through these different locations and characters. We'll go from Belle to the townsfolk, back to Belle, then to Gaston and Gaston's books and female hangers-on. The script and the credits call them the Bimbets, which I'm really not comfortable with saying. There is nothing about these characters that I'm comfortable with, Sam. <laughs> they're, they're a relic of a time, a time called the early 90s. So, I think, um, this is a bold claim, and I don't know if it's going to hold up to much scrutiny, I think this is my favourite song in the movie. Uh, do you know what? I I can kind of see it. I don't think that's as crazy a statement as you make. Oh no, but now I'm thinking about Be Our Guest and Beauty and the Beast. And But this one has ambition. This one has real scope. It doesn't have the heart, okay? It doesn't have the heart of Beauty and the Beast. It doesn't have the all-out pizzazz of Be Our Guest. But it's so complex musically and narratively and so sophisticated... I'm not going to argue with you on that one. I, I think right. you've got a bold claim there. 
Okay, I was kind of maybe hoping you would talk me round, because it feels mad, right? It feels really weird to say that, but it is so accomplished. It is so good at doing what it sets out to do, and it's a real musical theatre number. And the amount of moving parts that are going on, both visually in the sequence, musically in the song, and lyrically, with, you know, the kind of culmination of this, where you hear all the different overlapping conversations between townspeople at the same time. Meanwhile, Gaston is, like, pushing through, and he's also, he's like, get out my way, I'm going to make Belle my wife. He's, like, pushing through the whole, it's like, there's so many layers, and it just does not stumble one bit. I love it, it's great, it's perfect. The thing it reminds me of most in the style of the music is Sondheim. And I'm not a mm-hmm. massive deep cuts Sondheim guy, but as somebody who really likes Sweeney Todd and West Side Story, the way, especially Sweeney Todd, I think is what I felt here of the array of voices and the richness of the melodies, but also sometimes how staccato those interruptions are and that some bits are super melodic and some are very... I am kind of talking, but I'm singing, and someone else sings like this, and then like this, and now it's doing this. Do you know? <laughs> is that, yeah, is that yeah. a it's, wild yeah. comparison? I think, point? like Sondheim, the lyrics aren't beholden to catchy melodies, and the structure is not beholden to pop song structure, which definitely Beauty and the Beast, also Be Our Guest kind of are right i but can't believe isn't... sorry you just took my absolutely stupid impression of sondheim and managed to turn it into like actual words that make sense that mean exactly what i could never express in words <laughs> so thank you <laughs> it is sondheim-esque in that sense but also you know it goes back to it's operatic is what it is it's, it's all, maybe like gilbert and sullivan is another antecedent of this style of songwriting and you get this again later on to an extent in the mob song too which also has a lot of things going on and overlapping and i think just generally for that reason and the way that this song serves to introduce us to the story and the sheer number of songs and the the density of songs and the consistent pacing of songs throughout the film this is the disney movie that most closely resembles a broadway musical and it's it's no coincidence i don't think that it was the first that they adapted for broadway as well it was the first one that became broadway musical and they added songs in but there are songs all the way through this movie most disney musicals and we will see this over and over again the songs kind of stop at the halfway point as the drama amps up and in this they figure out how to make these songs dramatic i don't want to skip too far ahead to the mob song but we get like a big third act musical number so yeah i just think in in so many different ways this is the most broadway of all the disney movies and yeah maybe ashman's original tensions for aladdin would have had it similarly consistently broadway inspired and that's not quite what we get so i think this movie stands alone in that way so the music is incredible and complex and beautiful, but I also just love the sheer amount of stuff, of life, of characters, of weirdness that we get from this song. So there's a bunch of things that jumped out to me while I was watching it. Of course, we'd learn that Belle is a massive book nerd. She's reading uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, which immediately made me think, has she seen Mickey and the Beanstalk? Would she like Mickey and the Beanstalk? How would she feel about the giant marauding around Hollywood at the end? There's this woman, right, Sam? And she needs six eggs. She is desperate for six (laughs) eggs. And there are kids crawling all over her. And I was just like, what is this poor woman's story? What is her life? She's so desperate in that moment for those eggs. What does she need them for? Is she just feeding eggs to these kids who are just everywhere? 
there is, as you say, the density of that amazing shot where Belle is just walking through the town with her nose in the book and all this life is teeming around her and there's like someone carrying a load of sausages and all these people just humming around. There's such a sense of busyness and life to this environment she lives in and she's there going that she wants more than this provincial life. This place seems wild. Seems like there's tons of stuff happening. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's the sheer excitement of the egg woman and (laughs) the man who may or may not be cheating on his wife and and all of those guys, yeah. All these tiny little human dramas. It feels like a bustle in town. That's the perfection of it, yeah. I need six eggs. It's almost as if there's some kind of ravenous egg-guzzling fiend at loose in this town Mm. who's possibly keeping that egg supply low, making it difficult for the average mother to to feed her children eggs. A big egg conspiracy coming in here, which I'm sure we'll come to later. But yeah, there's just so much life in this show. Also a couple of real, as I said, like instant sense memories. When Belle is reading her book and all the sheep come on, one of the sheep chomps the corner of the page of the book. That is just in my brain forever and ever oh you have that incredible shot where Belle is kind of spinning around in the town square and the camera's spinning around her and again you just feel the possibilities of the animation at at this point in time and things that they're able to do that they've never been able to do before it's oh I love it so what do you think about Belle as a character then given that we've been introduced to her in this song I like Belle as a character I think my one issue with Belle in terms of how this song sets her up, is that it feels like we're getting a bit of a trope at the moment with these Renaissance films of our princesses being intriguingly different, but also being like, I'm not like other girls, girls. So we had that with Ariel, where she was distinct from the other mermaids who loved doing their hair and being in front of the mirror, and Ariel was off finding like weird human stuff in the ocean and dreaming of being somewhere else. But it was presented as like, oh, all those other girls are rubbish, but Ariel is interesting. And Belle has the same thing where it's great that she loves books and she loves stories, but she is presented as just being superior to everyone else in this town. She sees herself as being superior, but I also believe the film thinks she's superior to everybody else. And all the other women in this town have just frivolous... Concerns and I'll be at Bim Betts swooning over Gaston, which is a bit of a shame. But I do think that Belle is an interesting character and has a bit more going on than I expected. We we talked quite a bit in the Little Mermaid episode about what it is that Ariel wants and how understandably, in a lot of ways, that film has been flattened into this idea of oh, it's about the woman who literally gives up her voice to be with a man, and we discuss how actually maybe the film is more complex than that, and that is an oversimplification of what that situation is. I kind of felt the same about Belle, because this is the film where people go, oh, it's the film where the princess gets locked away, and then she falls in love with the man who locked her away, and just finds out that there's, oh, there's a man under the beast, and yes, all of those things are true, But actually, the way the film sets that up and the way the film explores those ideas, I think, has a little bit more to it. This is a woman who makes the choice that she makes for her father. She makes the choices for herself. She makes her own choices. She makes informed decisions. She is in control of what she wants and why she makes those choices. We also understand very much that what the Beast is doing is constantly presented as the wrong thing and that this guy has major, major issues. 
Belle is always putting the beast in his place and she's like telling him off all the time for being an absolute asshole. So I don't know, there was more going on than just, I don't know, the simpering princess who happily gets locked away and then falls in love with the person who locked her away. I thought she was quite an interesting heroine. What about you? Well, I mean, yeah, that's what a lot of these historical versions of the Beauty and the Beast story are. I think it's interesting, actually, that the Beauty and the Beast story, the two main versions that are used as the basis for the film, were written by women, and the screenwriter for this movie is a woman as well, uh, Linda Wolverton, Disney's first female screenwriter, so continuing that lineage of women giving forth their versions of this story, like Angela Carter's Bloody Chamber, which will have been one of the most well-known um, or it's a collection of stories, several of which are based on Beauty and the Beast. That'll have been one of the most well-known interpretations at this point in time as well. So I guess at least we are getting a princess here who is written by a woman, who is speaking words written by a woman. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the... I just think that the kind of it's Stockholm Syndrome take is, like you say, kind of boring and reductive and doesn't really account for the nuances of how that relationship is presented and develops... I think my main issue with Belle as a character is that, so we talked a bit about what she wants, and I think, you know, Ariel's I Want song, Part of Your World, it's classic, it gets across both different kind of versions of what she wants, and it's it's a very precision-engineered I Want song, whereas even though it's a great moment in the movie, I think the reprise of Belle, which is effectively her I Want song, feels like a bit of an afterthought and doesn't really ring true with what happens in the rest of the movie like she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere she wants it more than she can tell and that's not really what she gets so in that sense even though she does have like you say agency in most of what happens to her throughout the movie it's not like she's really taken active steps towards achieving this dream that she sets out for herself at the start like I'm, that gets across the fact that she's adventurous which backs up the actions that she takes to, like, get out there and save her dad. But, like, she does not get adventure in the Great Wide somewhere. She gets to live in a house for the whole movie with a dude. But, Sam, have you seen that house? What a house, man. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's big. But, spoilers for Last and Legacy, all of the sequels are also set in the house. Like, she <laughs> never gets adventure in the Great Wide somewhere in any version of this character that's been presented by Disney. So there's a bit of a disconnect between what that song tells us she wants and what she gets, which I think may be part of what makes her arc feel dissatisfying for a lot of viewers. I think as well, as much as I do feel there is more to this character and to the nuances of this romance, the thing that did really strike me that I do think is a problem and you would find a way around it these days is that all of Belle's decisions and desires are in correlation to the men in her life. So it's to save her dad, it is to avoid the advances of Gaston, it's towards finding the man inside the beast, it's within this kind of triangle of characters. She is surrounded by men, and as much as she has agency, and as much as I think there is more to her, all of those desires and wants, as you say, other than this vague at the beginning... I want something bigger. It generally then in the rest of the film plays out within the triangle of these three men. Yeah, and that actually brings me really well onto what I think is at the core of these issues with the Bell character, maybe these shortcomings with the Bell character. So like 
historically, this has been a story that in its most famous written forms has been written by women. And in many of these forms, it has centred women and women's desires or lessons that it wants to impart to female readers in terms of what the story represents. So, for example, the 18th century French versions of the story spoke to young girls who might be facing getting married off to undesirable men, and the idea was that this teaches them that if they try to love them, they'll find a, a caring prince underneath. So very much kind of playing into the problematic ideas that a lot of people raise in relation to this film. But there's a historian called Marina Warner who's written a lot on different versions of Beauty and the Beast, and she points out that the meaning behind the story changes by the time we get to the versions from the 1980s, like the famous versions from the 1980s, like Angela Carter's versions in The Bloody Chamber, or are you aware of the CBS TV show of Beauty and the Beast from the 1980s? Absolutely not. Okay, so by my understanding, that was a pretty big show in America at this point in time, and probably will have been a lot of people's most recent touchstone for Beauty and the Beast, like the most prevalent version of that story in American pop culture when this movie was made. Is that a live-action show? Is it an animated thing? I can't even picture what it is. It's like a live-action adult romantic drama. It feels like it occupies a similar space to, like, Supernatural now, that kind of thing, right? But it was it was a fairly big deal. It had Ron Perlman as the Beast. What? Perfect casting. Oh, yeah. Goodness. It had Linda Hamilton as the woman. I'm not sure what her name was. It probably wasn't Beauty. Um, oh. But yeah, Linda Hamilton was in there. It's a stacked cast. Yeah. So these kind of 80s versions of the story took a more modern approach by presenting the Beast as an erotic object of desire that represents Belle's sexual fantasies and a lot of these stories about women coming into their own sexually with the Beast as, like, a a cipher for that. But I don't think either of those ideas that have, like, driven previous adaptations of the story vis-a-vis the Belle character are really present in this movie. This is a movie about masculinity. This is a movie about men. This is not a movie about Belle. Even though she is the protagonist, she is the character we see the most of, the movie is really about the male characters. The things that the movie has to say are all in relation to Beast and Gaston. I think. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you that as this film develops, kind of Belle almost stays the same. She is a very consistent character all the way through the film, kind of like Ariel was, honestly, in The Little Mermaid. As much as she gets legs and then loses legs and gets legs and whatever, as we said, in that film, it's really Triton who changes. And in this, it's the men around her who change. And you have these presentations, especially, as you say, of Gaston and the Beast, where Gaston is the ultra-masculine dude who is the guy who everyone in this town wants, and he shoots things, and he goes to the pub and beats people up, because that's what men do. Uh, And he's presented as, obviously, to us as a knowing audience, we know that he's not a good guy. We don't instantly look at him and think, ah, yes, he's the paragon of positive masculinity. We understand this guy is a walking complex. But it's about presenting this person who all the women in the town want, and then the beast, who externally has this, well, beastly appearance. He's covered in hair and he's got fangs and horns and stuff, but actually... That's a manifestation of all this rage and anger that he's feeling, but he's got a lot of other more sensitive feelings in the middle. And that through the course of the film, we see more of the humanity of the beast and we see the monstrousness of Gaston really come into full effect. That felt like really what the arc of the film is. Yeah, it's about contrasting these two different versions of what a man should be and and presenting implicitly to its male viewers 
a good version of masculinity and a bad version of masculinity. And that is similar to a dichotomy that pops up in a lot of the older Disney princess movies that I think were critiqued in several of those episodes, whereby you've got Snow White and the Queen. You've got good female qualities and bad female qualities, you know? Being powerful is a bad thing because the Queen is powerful. Being submissive and domestic is a good thing because that's what Snow White is. And here you've got the masculine version of that, Noteworthy, I think, that Gaston is the first male villain in a Disney princess movie. All the other ones have been women that were meant to contrast the feminine qualities of the female lead. This one is meant to contrast the masculine qualities of the male lead. Also, the first interesting prince we've had in any of these films, really? Because something we said yeah. about all the other princess movies, about Snow White and Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty, and even The Little Mermaid, is that the male prince characters are all boring. They're all just like some guy who looks kind of dishy, who then is like, oh, well, you're the person. So yes, you are the prize to be won at the end. Whereas, look, you could argue all kinds of problematic stuff about the beast, and the film itself argues that. As you say, I think it's interesting that the film is coming at this from a position of, hey, you know, some guys would rather hide themselves in the west wing of their dilapidated mansion than go to therapy, am I right? And it presents that view and is constantly, like, berating the Beast's bad behaviour and his anger issues and constantly telling him that that's not the way to exist in the world. But yeah, he is at least an interesting character. He is not like those other princes who were just cardboard cut out, change the colour of the hair, give him a slightly different outfit, and they're all the same. This is a character with real substance and depth. Yeah, and he does develop, and he becomes a person who is more sensitive to Belle's needs, right? So he's like this monstrous... Oh, so well, we're getting back to something I talk about all the time in these things, which is the contrast between wilderness and domesticity, which you get in so many Disney movies and so many characters go through this journey where they are domesticated. And Beast is a really interesting version of that because he is externally this wild figure, but he never leaves the house. He never leaves the domestic space. So he's kind of wild and domestic at the same time. And... I guess his arc is going from the wild animalistic beast, like the first time we see him, he's on all fours, and he gets gradually more human as the movie goes on. The first time you see him, it's the most animalistic he gets, and by the end, he's wearing a cute little dinner jacket. But this arc that he goes through is actually reminiscent of a few other movies and cultural objects from this time, from the 1980s. Like, generally, during this period, there was a lot of talk about the rise of the quote-unquote new man, like this idea that, that what is now attractive, what is now kind of the, the archetype of masculinity is someone who rejects sexist stereotypes and traditional masculinity and embraces domesticity and sensitivity. And you see kind of handsome, hunky, rugged men making this journey in movies like Three Men and a Baby and Kindergarten Cop. Or like just, just more broadly, like the arc of Arnold Schwarzenegger from Commando to like Jingle All the Way is kind of this new man idea that this is what a cool guy is now. And I don't think that was necessarily ever true as a, as a broad cultural category. And, and, and definitely it's still, you know, there, there have been ups and downs in terms of what is and isn't considered attractive for men and masculine for men to do. But I think that's the conflict between the old man and the, the old man, the quote-unquote old man and the new man that would get embodied here between Gaston and the Beast. So Gaston, in the original version of this, the non-musical version, was a very different character. He was more of a fop. 
he was like a rich aristocratic like slightly camp guy who was trying to woo Belle with his money as opposed to with his masculinity and his strength and his brawniness. And I think the fact that they changed that to this new hyper-masculine version that is very much the antithesis of the new man speaks to the conflict they're trying to set up between Beast and Gaston. And I also think it's interesting that he goes from an aristocrat to someone who is socially powerful but is still a proletarian, still kind of living in this village. He's a hunter. He's not a lord or anything, right? So, I don't know, I think it's interesting that the desirable new man is being linked, like, explicitly aligned with the bourgeoisie, with the aristocracy in the Beast, and the hyper-masculine ruffian is like a working-class guy. I think there's class issues here as well as gender issues in terms of how Beast and Gaston are being represented, is what I'm saying. I mean, there's so much going on in this dynamic, and... As you say, I think it's interesting if they had kept the, what, as you say, more kind of foppish version of Gaston, that probably would have been interesting, more nuanced satire of this guy who presents himself as being very sophisticated, actually still has the worse beastliness inside him than what the beast has on the surface. But I think this film, in some ways, is just going for the broader brushstrokes than that. I think that's maybe an extra level of nuance than this film really needs, I think, that dynamic. between. <laughs> Are you saying I'm reading too much into it, Ben? <laughs> no, no, because genuinely, I think everything that you're saying really tracks. I'm just trying to think and imagine an alternate version of that film without this version of Gaston, and I don't think it works quite as well, or it doesn't have the same overt yeah. punch. Right, okay. But I, yeah, I'm fascinated by what you say about the beast itself. And as you say, the, he's introduced as a fully animal character on all fours. He reminded me of the ferocity of the bear from The Fox and the Hound. I think it does an interesting job of, at some points in his private moments with the living household objects, he then sometimes has moments of like real vulnerability and goofiness, and you see that he's just a guy who stupid guy who can't take care of himself but how quickly then that turns to the anger i think it's really interesting how they flip him between those modes as he kind of softens over the film but also i think it just really works on the standpoint of this as i say being a gothic romance being a gothic movie and you think of those themes of masculinity and wildness and heathcliff and wuthering heights and haunted house stories of the secret in the house being a physical manifestation of an emotional problem. Thinking about, yeah, all the Bronte novels, and as I said before, I'm a big fan of Crimson Peak. I love Crimson Peak. I think it's a massively underrated Del Toro movie. And I think because of the grandiosity of the castle here as well, it felt very <laughs> Crimson Peaky to me. And that, again, is like exploring monstrousness of people through supernatural analogies and there being this kind of area of the house where no one can go. It really came alive to me, this film, as a full-on proper gothic romance. And I think the presentation of the Beast really ties into that. I mean, those themes are still at work there, though. Like, Heathcliff is an absolute textbook example of this quote-unquote wild character who is taken in by this wealthy family and domesticated in the same way that a lot of these Disney heroes are. Yeah, so I think that thematically tracks as well. At the end of the movie, even though it's a movie about teaching us to see through these things and accept people for who they are and move beyond, like in Belle's case with Gaston, for example, move beyond the expectations that have been shoved upon us by society, 
the bourgeois domesticity is the default. Like in Little Mermaid, like in all of these movies, we end up with a beautiful human man married to a beautiful human woman living in a beautiful, gigantic castle. Yeah, there is so much going on with the beast. Uh, we're getting into some very heady stuff, and I'm loving it. I'm feeling fed, Sam. My brain is being fed by your brain, fueled by those five dozen eggs. Uh, but let's talk about Gaston, who is an absolute dummy. <laughs> and, uh, God, he's introducing <laughs> this film like shooting a goose out of the sky? What an absolute rotter. What a horrible guy. But yeah, Gaston, he's all brawn, no brain. But he does have a good set of pipes on him, and he has a very fun song. He has Beauty and the Beast's equivalent of Umpapa. Oh, the big song in the bar. I love Umpapa. That's my favourite song in all of <laughs> And they're twist. both in bars. What is it with just like umpa songs in bars with pints of beer splashing everywhere? Yeah, great song. That song has, I think, my favourite lyric in the movie. Wow, okay. Which is, actually, it's it's the reprise. It's the reprise of that song when they start um, making their evil plan, concocting that plan, and we get... Um, no one plots like Gaston, takes cheap shots like Gaston. No one persecutes harmless crackpots like Gaston. <laughs> I just love that. It's a, it's a great little bit of playing with the meter there. Just what a phrase, persecutes harmless crackpots. I think my favourite was, no one's neck's as incredibly thick as Gaston, <laughs> and it coincides with him like breaking a belt that was buckled around his own neck. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. But then you also get, like, every last inch of me is covered in hair. But you know who's even hairier with an even thicker neck? My man, the Beast. <laughs> he's got haunches. It's, he's so inadequate. Yeah, we already know. Like, actually, quite a lot of the things that LeFou says about Gaston and Gaston says about himself apply more so to the Beast. Imagine how many eggs that dude eats. <laughs> Unseemly. All served up by singing crockery. Gaston is just, he just walks into scenes and messes things up. Another sense memory for me was uh, all the mud that he gets on Belle's book and the way the mud kind of drips off the book in the opening sequence. That was, again, pure sensory overload to my little brain. Yeah, and Gaston as a character is great because he is so funny. Like, I think he is, we talked about how, like, from the very start of the movie, he's clearly, like, a sexist pig. But he is funny. As I don't want to say himbo, because I feel like you've got to be nice to be a himbo. But he's like a big, dumb guy. He's a big, dumb jock. And his stupidity is funny, and his arrogance is funny. And over the course of the movie, it shifts, and it stops being funny, and it starts being serious, the more serious he gets about winning Belle for his own and killing the beast and all that. And um, it's a great voice performance from Richard White, who is this incredible like opera singer, as well as great at delivering the comedic lines. And then you've also got this animation performance from a guy called Andreas Deja, who is really, during this period, Disney's villain specialist. So he also did Jafar and Scar in Aladdin and the Lion King. And I don't know, Gaston might be his best, though, because you get this shift... And the way the character is drawn, like, subtly shifts, his expressions become a lot more concerning as the movie goes on as well. I mean, the way he looks in the live-action-ish remake of this that came out a few years ago, he's played by Luke Evans, but as he is seen in this animated version, he looked to me kind of like Bruce Campbell from the Evil Dead movies. Like, just the chin and the black hair and the kind of gurning masculinity of it all. Um, except he's not getting whacked over the head with plates smashed by his own hand. That's kind of more Roger Rabbit's thing. But yeah, I agree with you what you're saying about the way that he shifts 
over the course of the film and how maybe it is making a point of the seemingly very overt but moderately humorously innocuous sexist twattery of this guy actually gives way to real horrible harmful violence and damage i think that is part of the point that the film is making I also like that as he becomes more monstrous and more villainous at the end when he is using the mirror with the beast's face in it to be like, hey, here's the beast, let's go kill the beast. And he's waving it around. It's covered in green lighting and that being, as we've said many, many times on this show, the ultimate Disney villain character. Yeah, you only get that a little bit, but you do get that at the end there. I love that song as well. I love the mob song. Again, very operatic, very efficient at what it's trying to do. Very reminiscent of the Headless Horseman song, the Bing Crosby Headless Horseman song with Bron Bournes in uh, Ichabod and Mr. Tord. I think that the character resembles Bron Bournes quite a lot, actually, from that movie. But the way that he's singing to this crowd and telling them all of the dubious mythology of this this creature, which in this movie he's just making up off the top of his head. He didn't know about the beast until a second ago. Yeah, and the lyrics of that song, it's been noted before, I think this is noted in the Howard documentary, that the lyrics in this song obviously stand in for a great deal of prejudices. Like, for example, we don't like what we don't understand, in fact it scares us and this monster is mysterious at least. Bring your guns, bring your knives, save your children and your wives, we'll save our village and our lives, we'll kill the beast. And that could stand in for any kind of prejudice against any kind of minority group, but... It does work very well, whether intentionally or not, as a metaphor for the ostracization of gay men during the AIDS epidemic and the context of where Howard Ashman was in his life at this point in time impels us toward that reading, I think. Yeah, I think the lyrics are written in a really clever way, as you say, that on the one hand they are very broad and very widely applicable just to prejudice as a whole, but the specificity of how applicable that is to everything and the way that these things go, as you say, things people don't understand, save your wife, save your kids, that being the rhetoric. Like, we see that all the time even now. So I think that's very prescient and very sharp songwriting in its broadness, if that makes sense. But again, I must point out, this movie doesn't end with these people embracing the Mm. beast in fact we don't know what happens to these people at all we don't see these people again after the big fight but it certainly doesn't end with this society embracing the beast in spite of his difference it ends with him as a human it reinforces that even if this is a metaphor for homophobia the ending of the movie reinforces that heteronormative perspective by reducing everybody to the basic gender binary domestic beautiful norm you're absolutely right there's so much fascinating stuff going on in this film and i love the places that this film goes to and that we're able to go to in these discussions but it also feels like the film gets into some big heavy serious slightly scary stuff and then every so often goes oh god we need a big fun song to lift the mood to change the scenery to just zhuzh up the audience a bit keep the kids amused i think we should do the same and get on to one of the biggest disney bangers i think has ever been written be our guest be our guest sam be our guest Put my service to the test right now and let's discuss this incredible, incredible song. Wait, I say that. I mean, I know Belle is your favourite song in the musical, but you love Be Our Guest as well, right? Of course I love Be Our Guest. It's a great song. It's a great sequence. It's full of these great characters. 
like Lumiere and Mrs. Potts really come into their own here. <laughs> I was going to say we'll get a great sense of what's going on with these enchanted objects and how their world works. But actually, in a way, I think it kind of complicates. It adds more issues to our question of what is this curse. Like, So we've got the characters who are dancing and singing who have faces, but then we also have like <laughs> just a hundred plates that are dancing around but don't have faces. So I think my theory is that maybe that's what happened to like all the insects in the house they got turned into plates because yeah it raises so many questions we get a lot of this film with chip the little boy but at one point chip gets put back in a cupboard of all these other cups that are presumably other kids but they they're never awake that that raised so many questions that this film wasn't prepared to answer but yeah anyway it's a good song again great fast pace great like overlapping vocals overlapping lyrical lines really super catchy a big fun moment and one that lets us experiment a little bit with the visuals like the scenes where this cuts to it cuts away from like the more concrete setting of bell sitting around the table and into something a bit more stylized like the more abstracted sequences of rows and rows of plates dancing on a 2d plane which kind of precipitates the even more interesting musical sequences in films like aladdin and the lion king and hercules like visually speaking you know they're starting to experiment i mean we've been talking about how much this takes from broadway musical structures but also the thing i love about this sequence is how much it is drawing visually from hollywood musicals that the way that the plates and forks become characters and people in these kind of swirls of shapes and colors it's like a busby berkeley esther williams musical it's like those old like swimming musicals the way that they're presented uh, the way that those characters move is recreated with like yeah, plates and cutlery i think that is genius and i like how in this song we constantly shift from the realistic perspective of bell sat at the table being confronted with lumiere but then also the song goes to these fantastical places where it's happening in some kind of mystical nowhere place it's happening in musical land where none of the usual rules apply we get that incredible shot which now instantly stood out to me as a caps shot of all of the candles kind of doffing their caps and the cameras pushing along the table that has been massively elongated again it's just part of the plastic reality of this sequence cameras pushing along the table past all of these rows of the candles there's so much energy and color in this sequence it just the film absolutely pops off right down to the fact that it ends with all of those champagne bottles just going and all of the frothing booze coming out of it it was just yeah sensory joy in this sequence yeah it's a great point that you make about like how loose the kind of physical world of this movie becomes in order to accommodate the musicality of it so howard ashman actually said in one of his lectures to the disney animators that music may have more license in the animated film in the same way that it does in the theater because the level of reality is different like howard ashman believed that the animated movie was a more suitable home for the musical than the live action movie because in an animated movie like in a theater you are already suspending your disbelief in what's going on so the fact that everyone bursts into song all the time doesn't take you out of the action. And here, with this movie, Disney start to take that a step further, thinking how can we go even further than the theatre? How can we take advantage of the fact that 
people who are already suspending their disbelief insofar they believe in this animated world and ask what else we can do without taking them out of the narrative. How far can we push these things visually? Do we have to stick rigidly to a version of reality or can we do something a bit more experimental? And all of these deviations from reality in the movies of the Disney Renaissance, which are still broadly speaking kind of in that classic Disney realist mode, take place during the musical sequences. It's a theme we'll see recur. Yeah, as much as you say this sequence is kind of bending the reality of the film, it is also opening up narrative opportunities. The way that this song is used as a chance for storytelling opportunities for the staff of the house and what their story is and what they've been through. This is, as we said, where we learn that they have been in stasis for 10 years. And that over the course of this song, it's for the audience's excitement, it's for Belle, but it's also a sign of Belle's presence, like waking up this house again. Again, this idea of the house as a living entity that has just been so stagnant and closed. And that just her being there and her being open to the house means the house is responding to her and and waking up and having some energy again and having a bit of life in the halls of this place for the first time in forever and lumiere getting to lead this thing like i think the exquisiteness that i'd forgotten was i don't know the first two thirds of this song are incredible and like the melody is amazing but then sam when it slows down and lumiere gets in his zone and he's like Cause by cause, one, one by, by one. one. Yeah. Ah, he's really going for it. Like, this is Lumiere's time to shine. And that guy literally shines. That's what he does. Yeah, so brilliant performance by Jerry Orbach. Brilliant performance by Angela Lansbury, who, as with a typical Broadway cast recording, were in the room together doing this with a live orchestra. Uh, first time I think that had happened on a Disney movie with Howard Ashman there to direct their vocal performances. But I want to go back to this point that you make about this being the moment where the house opens up to Belle and where we find out that life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. We're not whole without a soul to wait upon. And it just makes you think, hmm, it raises those class issues again, right? Like, who are these people when they are people? Are they that subservient to the beast? They are literally accessories to his character in this movie to a sense right and like they are this idea that i was talking about before of like bourgeois domesticity given form like you say they are the house the house is alive the domestic space is alive i don't know to their credit they give them a great deal of character to the animators credit they give character to these very small fairly rigid objects they managed to give them personalities and expressions and stuff which i think is really impressive using squash and stretch techniques which when you watch the live action remake where it's just a teapot or just a clock and it isn't afforded that degree of movement it becomes very clear how talented the animators were working on this thing that they were able to give them that kind of personality but yeah what these characters represent in our little discussion that we've been having about domesticity and class is interesting. I think especially when they fight the mob of the unwashed masses at the end of the movie. It's like the bourgeois space, you know, the realm of the upper class, literally taking up arms and refusing entry to these villagers, to these peasants. And that dichotomy it sets up between the villagers who we do not see after that moment and the people who work in the house who get to have a happy ending 
living as servants forever just like they wanted is uh yeah it's 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 interesting who we get to see have a happy ending and who we don't is what i'm saying yeah a couple of things to pick up on there first up i do not really like the bill condon live action remake of this film and one of its massive disappointments for me is the be our guest sequence which just feels so flat it just has so little of the energy of this version. Like, say what you will about the Guy Ritchie Aladdin, and I'm sure we will when the time comes, but at least that sometimes has a bit of energy in the musical stuff, whereas this one, I think, really flat. Be Our Guest without the energy is a crime. Don't do that. But something else that does have energy in this film, as you say, is that big battle sequence at the end, which, as the house was preparing for the battle and all of the furniture and cutlery is coming to life... I was like, this is this is Helm's Deep right here. There's a massive <laughs> storm outside. The rain is lashing. It's the middle of the night. They're trying to get into this fortress. They're bashing down the door with a big log. I was like, this is Helm's Deep. This is the two towers. We're right there. But th- Sam, the reason I want to talk about this is that I think it kind of maybe brings us into some Disneyversity Legends territory, which I was there for the majority of this film going... I don't know if there's a Disneyversity legend for this. As you say, in these Renaissance films, the side characters, the supporting characters, are so famous and so well-known that maybe there isn't such a thing as a like a minor character in these films. Until we met the Massive Wardrobe. A Massive Wardrobe who <laughs> is in other parts of the film as well, is helping Belle get dressed and is part of just the general like atmosphere of the house, but does not get any of the shine of... Lumiere or Mrs. Potts or Cogsworth although I I love Cogsworth and his little face there's all these other characters who get kind of quite a lot of moments and have their merch I don't think I've ever seen a piece of merch that is the wardrobe who in this battle is just doing all of the work she like hops off a balcony and crushes a man and then she's like beating people up with her drawers and her doors and like smacking people and she's just an absolute unit she's got mrs cluck energy (laughs) in that she's just an absolute tank she's literally a unit she's a unit of furniture she's an ikea unit yeah if this is a lord of the rings battle this is like the bit in the mines when the goblins bring in the troll and it's just like smashing about they've got a wardrobe (laughs) i can tell you that in the stage adaptation her name is madame de la grande bouche and she is given a lot more to do and she's given a backstory whereby she's an opera singer what that's just added to the incredible legacy of this character. Madame La Bouche? What? La Grande... La Madame Grand de Bouche. La Grande Bouche, which means big mouth. Mrs. Big Mouth. <laughs> She's an opera singer. <laughs> I don't know what you feel like. Like, I was just very, very taken with Madame Grande Bouche. <laughs> I thought she yeah, was great. Yeah, I'm happy with it. It hadn't occurred to me, but she ticks every single box. Uh, there's a deleted song that Howard Ashman wrote called Human Again, which is reinstated in some of the re-releases where she gets a lot more to do what? as well. Singing about how she wants to be human again. That's on YouTube if you want to watch that. What? Release the Madame de la Grande Bouche cut. The hashtag begins here. So I will say, happy to let her in, I'm surprised he didn't go for the, the dog who's also a footstool. Like the dog who's also a footstool, I think I remembered him too well and I wasn't as surprised by him. The other candidate for this, who is a much, an even more minor character was the hat stand with a hat who uses his little hat stand things as fists and beats people up. I liked the hat stand with the hat, but for me, it was it was the wardrobe all the way. The wardrobe is the one that stood out to me, as much as I like little dog footstool. Okay, let her are, in. Are we doing it? 
I will say, and this is worth, I'm not necessarily putting this forward for this episode, but this this is worth bearing in mind as we go forward. A friend and colleague, Kat Lester, who listens, asked me recently, has there ever been a human Disneyversity legend? And I don't think there has. And I was thinking of who could be one. And my first thought went to, like, maybe LeFou? I think he's probably too prominent, but, like, I like LeFou a lot, and he gets one of the best songs. I'm not saying LeFou, I'm just saying mm-hmm. maybe that's a jumping-off point for the future to start thinking about, will there ever be a human Disneyversity legend? It's an intriguing conversation. Maybe maybe that's an inherent thing in a Disneyversity legend, that they have to be enough of a weird little guy, a guy in a non-gendered sense, that they have to either be, like, an object or an animal or a little critter yeah. of some kind. Also, I'm not the biggest fan of LeFou. I'm going to say it. Ooh, I'm not okay. a massive LeFou guy. We, we don't have time to get into that right now. Maybe on a bonus <laughs> pod, we'll fight about LeFou. <laughs> All right, okay. But for now, let's just talk a little bit more about some of the other characters in this house. Uh, I want to talk about Mrs. Potts, right? Because Angela Lansbury, there's something about her voice. Half of the things she says and most of the stuff she sings starts to make me feel like it's a little bit dusty in the room sound feeling i don't know it's feeling a little bit emotional right now all the stuff of when bell and the beast are kind of starting to feel things for each other and she's the one who gets to sing there's something there that wasn't there before i think it does get across oh, let's get super cheesy for a minute but like the magic of falling in love of there being nothing and then there being something and that growing and it being a tender thing between two people who are kind of in it but they're tentative but they're excited but they're scared i think it really gets that across in this film in a lovely way if we ignore the fact that this whole film takes place over like two days we have to put it in the romeo and juliet category of just wildly crazy romances that spring up out of nowhere that happen over basically no time and we just have to go with it because it's a tale as old as time it's a song as old as ryan beauty and the beast we <laughs> if we pick that apart then we'd be here all day uh but these the songs kind of skirt that in a really smart way by making you feel that growing attraction and not question the fact that it's happening like that but also mrs potts gets you the other big song beauty and the beast itself tale as old as time the ballroom sequence my god it is just absolutely stunning i still felt the magic of that scene i mean it is like that moment when they walk into that room and the song's actually already playing i think when they're eating like before they get to the ballroom and then it kind of swells as they open the door into the ballroom and we see our first fully cgi setting that is being inhabited and moved through by 2D characters in one of these Disney animated movies. And it is a moment. It's a moment for the characters and it's a moment for the audience. Like, the awe of the audience watching their entry into this three-dimensional world, which especially at the time people have never really seen anything like it in animation before, kind of mirrors the strength of their burgeoning relationship. Like that, okay, this is a weird thing to say. That moment of them walking into the ballroom when I'm watching it, it kind of feels like falling in love, like seeing whole new dimensions of a person. And the, the use of the technology there and the expansion of the dimensions of this world, I don't know, it, it hits in almost the same way. It mirrors what's happening with the characters at that moment. But I have to ask, uh, there's a bit of preamble for this, but so I recently took my students on a trip to the Wallace Collection where they have a lot of Disney concept art 
from Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella alongside a lot of the original French decorative art pieces that inspired them. It's a really cool exhibition. It's on till the 16th of October, so when this comes out, if you live in London, there's still time to go and see it. But they have a screen playing the ballroom scene on loop, and I had students seeing two very surprising things. One, I forgot that it was CGI. When they saw this when they were kids and they haven't watched it in a while, it kind of surprised them that this wasn't in the same medium of animation as the rest of the movie. And two, that the CGI looks kind of ropey and dated by today's standards. How do you feel about that, Ben? I can sort of understand the latter point, but also I didn't feel that myself because I think I was just caught up in the emotion of it all. And I think that emotion is almost some amber being cast around this moment that I think maybe for your students, if they if they didn't grow up on this film and they don't have that emotional attachment to it and you're just seeing it as the imagery, maybe you look at the imagery and go, that looks a little bit ropey by today's standards. I think if you are caught up in those characters and that story, that's not what you're thinking about. And as much as... I felt the significance of this CGI environment, especially the chandelier and the boundaries of the room. You can you can tell that, you can feel that. As you say, I totally get what you're talking about, where you're talking about the expansive possibilities of this and how it feels new and the way that feels like a new sensation for the characters and for the audience as well. But the thing that I was most struck by was, Sam, this is how much I've been learning from you through this podcast, the acting of the characters in that environment, the way that they are drawn, there's this tiny tender moment. I think there's so much tenderness in this relationship, which is why it works so well. When Belle rests her head on the beast's chest and we just get this like little moment from him of, of shock and delight at feeling that, of her putting her head on his chest. And that just swept me away. It's, it's it's beautiful and so much of this film is sensory right you don't get that tenderness without having the moment earlier in the film where she's kind of scrubbing away at the beast's wounds and or saying like this is gonna hurt and he's yelling at her and she's yelling back at him and she's like it's not gonna hurt if you don't move i love that bickering dynamic between them and to go from that and you you wince at the pain and you feel the anger and the frustration on both sides to then just, as I said, yeah, the tenderness of this whole ballroom sequence, but that moment where she puts her head on his chest, absolutely stunning. Yeah. So no, I wasn't bothered about the background and whether it looked ropey because I was just <laughs> like, oh God, look at this beautiful love story. That scene where she's cleaning his wounds and they're arguing has one of my favourite pieces of animation in the film. It was Glenn Keane, who I've shouted out many times before, was supervising animator for The Beast. And it's the bit where they're just having this kind of normal, like, couple argument about why things went south, why she got attacked by the wolves, whose fault it was. And he goes, well, you shouldn't have been in the West Wing. And he does a great big goofy grin, like he's won the argument. Like he should be angry, but he's just like grinning because he's won that fight. I think that's a great piece of animation. And like when he's about a surprise her with the library, he's really adorable. Like that's what I mean. Like he, he gets more human as the movie goes on, culminating in this sequence. And that's the, the subtlety of the work that Glenn King and his team put in on the beast. I also want to shout out James Baxter and Mark Henn, who were the supervising animators for Bell, because they are also legendary and prolific animators from this era whose work will continue to come across. Yeah, incredible stuff all around. Also, you just mentioning the wolves there. The wolves, both the sequences with the wolves, terrified me as a kid. 
I hated the start of this film when Belle's dad is getting chased. In my mind, it was actually way more visceral than it was when I rewatched it. Uh, but the, the snapping jaws, I think it's because when he gets through the gate, when he's let into the gates of the castle, one of the wolves still like grabs his foot and rags it around a bit. It feels really, really dangerous. I, that absolutely messed me up as a kid. And you just saying wolves there brought it all back. We have I've tucked <laughs> it away in a box and we haven't spoken about that through this episode. I mean, this has been a mammoth discussion. There's still a million things in my notes that we could talk about, but I think we need to get onto the finale of the film. We've talked about the battle. We've talked about Gaston and the Beast and how that's set up. We've talked about the burgeoning love story and all of this swirls together in this final reel. We get a showdown of Gaston versus Beast. We get that all-important declaration of love from the Beast's side, and then ultimately from Belle's side as well, just in time before the last petal is going to fall, again raising questions about how quickly or not these petals have been falling, (laughs) because, I don't know, at the start of the film, half of the rose is still left, and by the end, this is like a full-on race against time to get there before the last petal falls. That also means it's Beast's birthday. happy, Happy 21st, big birthday for Beast. Big birthday Beast boy, congrats. There's plenty going on here. It stood out to me that, well, we get that kind of little bit of morality, right, where the Beast has a chance to kill Gaston, and he doesn't take it. He saves Gaston's life, and we see that as an honourable moment. Gaston has this other moment of villainy then when he takes his shot at the Beast after that. He could have just left alone and gone back to the town and never bothered anyone again. And it's very Disney morality going right back to Snow White that Gaston's then extra attempt to kill the beast is his own downfall, that he falls off the roof and down a ravine? (laughs) Where'd that ravine come from? Yeah, we get that a lot in the Disney Renaissance. They really start going back to that well over and over again where the villain goes back for one last move and it kind of absolves the hero of responsibility for their death. Beast can't kill Gaston because he has to have been redeemed. He's no longer animalistic. He is a human. Then... Much like human Pinocchio, we have to agree, (laughs) human beast is weird, right? We don't like human beast. He's really weird, and I'm going to say some of the things... Well, partly, he looks a bit like Tarzan. He looks like a proto-Tarzan. So I think that's also just confusing. I think it might be his lips that look weird. There's something about his lips that looked off. He's also... Not that this is a bad thing, but it's just surprising. He's basically ginger. (laughs) There was just something where so much of how his just human design was created i was like i'm not buying this guy i don't believe that he's a guy even bell doesn't look convinced she keeps like stroking his hair which i (laughs) I feel like she fell in love with the beast like she has a type she obviously wants i'm not saying she's like gonna be hugely physically attracted to the beast but it at least stands to reason that she wants kind of like a hairy rugged dude you know like a bit, maybe a beard or something would have done this guy. Maybe she'll say to him later on, like, do you think you could grow a beard? Because I like the whole hairy thing. I liked it when every interview was covered in hair. <laughs> covered in hair. Again, we don't see human beast basically in any other form of Disney media because Good. the audiences, like Belle, fell in love with the beast beast. So every spin-off 
as we'll see, has to contrive to keep us in that moment. But as much as I don't like Human Beast, I like how we get there. I I know it's really cheesy, but her crouching over him and him saying what he thinks are his final words, at least I got to see you one last time, that really got me. I liked the transformation sequence, the pink sparkles raining down, those kind of firework effects. Again, felt very like typical Disney magic, but I thought there was some really interesting animation when he transforms, the way that he floats in the air and how kind of dangly and droopy he is and how swept up by the elements he is. Um, He's got light shooting out of his fingers and his toes. He's like a proto superhero for that very brief moment. But the biggest shame for me was not just that he transforms from the beast into this slightly boring human the like amazing spooky ass castle just becomes like a normal ass castle i kind of liked it spooky yeah i mean but then bell wouldn't want to live there forever oh there we go there's an ending they go back to the village oh well then she still doesn't get adventure in the great white somewhere but i, I like I, I would at least like to see beast go back to the village to like a dad's house or something i don't know i'm just trying to figure out ways to get us out of this castle <laughs> it just doesn't feel like a satisfying ending in the story to have the wall just end up there. But, you know, everyone turning into a human and being happy and having a little party, that's satisfying. The last dance that they do together, that's the dance from Sleeping Beauty. Right. What, what, the actual moves they're doing are from Sleeping Beauty. It's, yeah, it's, it's like traced on from Sleeping Beauty. That sequence itself reminded me of, in terms of this just being like a big Disney princess mega mix. Halfway between Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty with that extra ballroom ending. So again, that felt like it was harking back to that earlier era. And I think you feel that as well in the final shot of the movie. Because we go back to that Sleeping Beauty-esque stained glass window. And the final shot of this film is just absolutely gorgeous. They hold it for a couple of seconds and I'm so glad they do. But again, the the detail and the texture of that stained glass, of the imagery they're using, of the light, it's so sophisticated, it's so gorgeous, it feels like the perfect closing moment for this film. It feels like it all just culminates in this absolutely stunning final image that I couldn't take my eyes off. It really touched my heart. Got some raw emotions here, Sam. Raw emotions in both senses. Raw emotions and raw emotions. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, look, we're exhausted. We've been talking about this film for nearly two hours and we're still only two-thirds of the way through the show, so let's bounce. Let's leave this epic library that never ends (laughs) and get back to the rest of the show. Come on then, Sam. Let's leave the gothic spooky mansion behind and step into the wonderful, bright, lovely castle that brings us to Discarded the section where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the nasty, odd stuff that didn't make the movie. Now, Sam, I bet this one is an absolute horror show in its original form. So what are we talking here for Discarded with Beauty and the Beast? Well, okay, so we already touched on the origins of the Veneuve version, that literary version. And, you know, we talked about some of the changes that were made, some of the kind of broader story changes. Honestly... This particular version, not super dark, or maybe at least not in the ways that you would expect. So there's two major differences I wanted to highlight. I think something that really plays into our interests is the fact that the household objects, like I say, that's not in this original version, but the Beast does have servants. He has monkeys and parrots for servants. That doesn't make any sense. Is that part of the curse? (laughs) 
good in question. human life was he already just like oh, i'll have monkeys and parrots do all my things for me the parrots can do the talking the monkeys can do the typewriting what is this operation <laughs> that the prince is running here it would have been a good opportunity for disney though right you could have got joe carioca in oh, there oh yeah it's sort of a, a, a maitre d i think that would have been great okay so monkeys and parrots but the big thing is the twist ending Ooh. of the original written version of this story so a magic fairy arrives okay <laughs> okay this is like after the beast has been turned into a prince okay. a magic fairy arrives with the prince's mother the queen what we're finally gonna find out a bit more about what is happening in this kingdom what he's the prince of where's the queen been all this time the queen has been at war oh which i quite like for her like you don't always see that like the queen's been off at war it's more of a kingy thing i think the king's dead in this so the queen had to fight the war i think that's quite cool yeah a bit of a rhaenyra targaryen vibe yeah i, I guess is that from that show i don't watch okay <laughs> so she had to go to war when the prince was a baby. She left him in the care of what she presumably didn't realise was an evil fairy. Look, we've all done it, <laughs> you know? You leave somebody in charge of your baby and then it's like, oh, turns out they were an evil fairy. So when he grows up, the fairy tries to seduce him and he's not interested. So that's why mm. she put the curse on him in the first place. Because he didn't think this fairy who raised him was hot? Yeah. What is much. going on in France? So now a different fairy, a good fairy, has turned up with the queen. And the queen is thrilled to see that her son is, is human, but she is ashamed <laughs> that he's married to a commoner. Oh. <laughs> he's married to Belle, or that he's with Belle. But the fairy says, no, you don't need to worry about that. She's not really a commoner, because her real father, she says to the queen, is your brother. She is your niece. Oh, is that supposed to be a happy ending? That's the happy ending. It's okay that they're going to get married because she is actually from nobility, because she is actually the Beast's first cousin. Um, this is getting more and more like House of the Dragon as we speak. <laughs> wow, cousin loving. Yeah, so I think probably wise for Disney to leave out the twist ending, even if it did leave us with some questions <laughs> about where the Beast comes from. So, alright, that's the Wiener version, but... Of course, versions of this story exist in oral traditions around the world. I'm just going to run us through a couple of interesting ones that I found, okay. okay? So, there's a version from Italy in which the beast is a snake. It's it's like a different animal all over. Sometimes it's a pig, sometimes it's a bear, sometimes it's a lion. I guess in the movie it's like a, like a bison or something. He's got like the horns, but like a lion's mane, sort of. So, in Italy, he is a snake. And instead of letting her go and visit her family like the beast does in this movie and like he does in a lot of versions of the story she wants to attend her sister's wedding in the italian version and he says i'll let you go but you've got to take me as your plus one <laughs> i'm not gonna lie i'm kind of liking this snake i'm imagining him as sir hiss in my mind <laughs> surely perfect. as well it would be a plus one <laughs> So she has to take the snake to the wedding. During the wedding, they <laughs> they dance together. I mean, this is a great movie. Yeah, I don't know if he's got legs or if he's just like slithering around. So they they have a dance. So she accidentally kicks him in the tail. And oh, he he's all tail. He's a snake. Snakes are just one long tail. <laughs> there you go. And uh, that's how he turns back into a into a prince because she kicked him in the tail. That was all you had to do. Can you imagine, right? You're a guest at this wedding. Okay. <laughs> 
there's this couple getting married. You've known them for a while. One of them, suddenly their sister turns up. The bride's sister rocks up. And her plus one is a snake. And every all night, everyone's like, why did she bring a snake to this wedding? What, who just turns up to a wedding with a snake and then claims it's their partner? And then everyone's weirded out by it. Everyone's been having some drinks. They're all talking about it behind their back. Then everyone is dancing. And somehow, against all the odds, this snake is dancing as well. She kicks the snake and it turns into a human man? <laughs> I'm sorry, but any hopes I have for how great my own wedding will now be have instantly been usurped by this crazy snake wedding from the Italian Beauty and the Beast. That's a bar that's impossible to live up to. What a wonderful flight of fancy that was. I greatly enjoyed <laughs> that. Okay, so in a Spanish version, she finds out that in order to break the curse, this is very reminiscent of all of the various stipulations in the various contracts in the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid, by the way. In order to break the curse, she has to kill the beast, cut him open... And throw him in a fire. And then when she throws him in a fire, a pigeon flies out of the gash in his body. (laughs) And then the pigeon lays an egg. Keep going, keep going. (laughs) What's in the egg? What's in the egg? Is it a snake? The prince is in the egg. (laughs) Like tiny as a baby? A fully grown man, but the size of a small egg? Unclear. I don't know whether he's tiny. It was either a tiny prince or a giant egg from a giant pigeon. But then the pigeon has to fit inside the beast. So this is like a turducken. (laughs) Like a a Christmas bird in a bird in a bird in a beast. Yeah, yeah. It's a prince in an egg in a bird in a beast. That's pretty much the best one. There's a German version where the beast is a giant poodle. <laughs> that sounded quite good. That also ends with them getting thrown in a fire. Oh, God. why is that a recurring thing? There's lots of kind of weird recurring elements. Like, for example, in almost all of these, no matter where they're from in the world, Belle has lots of jealous sisters, and that's something we don't get in the Disney. And in almost all of them, Belle asks her dad for a gift and she, he is caught stealing that gift from the beast. So she might ask him for a rose, and he steals a rose from the beast garden, and that's how he gets caught. I don't know how these things work. You know, the, I mean, you know, the European ones, okay, you can see how these might have been like spread throughout mainland Europe by people visiting various countries. But like all of these elements recur in stories from like South America, from East Asia, from literally everywhere. So smarter people than me have probably written about why these stories arise in the way that they do. But it really is a tale as old as time with many, many variations. <laughs> tale as old as time, like the tale of a snake that's been kicked across a dance floor and unexpectedly turned into a human man. Oh, that is my favourite version. I want to see that. That needs to be real. Beauty and the snake. Okay. Is that it for discarded? Yeah, that's possibly it. That's, I mean, anymore? there's loads more. The Wikipedia for the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale is an absolute trove, but that's what we'll end on today. Amazing. Okay, so sadly, in this what like bear, bison, non-snake guy version, uh, what did critics say at the time about Beauty and the Beast? Was there a love-in for this film? Surely there was. So the really fascinating thing about this movie is that this was a huge critical success before it even been finished let alone released because 
they shored, in a really bold move, they shored an unfinished version of this full of storyboards, pencil tests, and unpainted cells, along with some finished animation. It opened the New York Film Festival. The work print version of Beauty and the Beast opened the New York Film Festival. And the audience, to everyone's surprise, all the producers thought this was a huge risk, the audience went absolutely wild just cheering like they were at a Broadway musical, cheering after every song and, wow. and crying when they were supposed to cry. That is like, it showed the work of the animators. I think that's why it's successful. It's almost like you're watching a performance because you can actually see what is being drawn. You can see how these things were made. In fact, the print wasn't just unfinished. It was two months old. This wasn't even the latest version they had. Katzenberg deliberately showed an old print to better highlight the process. Another little bit of Katzenberg tomfoolery there. So this had a lot of momentum going in, and they kind of knew they had a hit on their hands with this one before it even came out for that reason. Yeah, so huge critical acclaim. Giant Maslin at the New York Times says that Disney truly bridged a generation gap with The Little Mermaid, bringing the genre new sophistication without sacrificing any of the delight, and lightning has definitely struck twice with this one. So there's a real sense that Disney have a lot of momentum behind them in terms of capturing audiences from different demographics, bringing in teens on dates, for example. And Siskel and Eva on their show said that this was a legitimate contender for the Best Picture Oscar. And lo and behold, it was nominated, the first ever animated movie to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscar. Unfortunately, it lost to Ben Travis. Lost to me? I'm, like, I'm so sorry. I, I was born that year. I don't think I was the best picture, but I was born in 1991. Um, 91, what are we talking here? I mean, clearly the best picture of 1991 other than this was Terminator 2, but I don't think that was winning the Oscar. Wasn't nominated. Won a lot of Oscars, though. Come on, what was best picture? I could look it up and, and come across as smart, but... Oh, Forrest Gump? Are we gumping it? No, <laughs> that's 94. I'm giving you a clue. <laughs> You're doing an impression of the snake that was kicked across the dance floor and turned into a human man. That's not helping me right now, Sam. That's still Beauty and the Beast. It was Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> oh! <laughs> that was Hannibal Lecter. Okay, okay. Yeah, 91, of course. Yeah. So it was the first animated movie nominated for Best Picture. One of only three animated movies to be ever nominated for Best Picture. The other two being... Sorry, in my mind I was just coming up with Demi and the Freak. Jonathan Demi <laughs> and Hannibal Lecter. Uh, okay, what other animated movies? Because there wasn't a Best Animated Film category at this point, was there? Not at this point, no. An event that was established in 2001, Shrek won the first one. But several years after that, a couple of consecutive movies in consecutive years were nominated for Best Picture after they expanded the category to up to 10 nominees. Inside Both Out? from the same studio. No earlier than that. It was Toy Story 3 and Up were both nominated. Right. There we go. Yeah, so big deal. Really brought animation to new levels of respect within the industry. Like, the people who worked on this movie got to go to the Oscars and hear their name announced alongside famous actors and directors. You know, that's a big deal. Yeah, I, I wish nowadays we had more animated films also still nominated for best picture even though that category exists just because a film is animated it can still be a best picture contender you know okay so this was a huge hit critically it's doing festivals it's doing the oscars 
that must have been replicated at the box office, right? This must have made fat stacks of cash. Yep, it made $146 million domestic and $332 million worldwide. It was the third biggest movie of the year behind, and I won't turn this into a quiz, pause the podcast now if you want to answer yourself, (laughs) Terminator 2 and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It was the first animated film to gross $100 million or more domestic, it once again became the biggest animated movie of all time. That record just keeps getting broken over and over again by these big Disney hits. And reportedly at some screenings, adults outnumbered children by 10 to 1. So again, it's a movie for everybody. It, that sense is really coming across with audiences. I mean, that brings us nicely into what we think of it now. But for me, something that really struck me about this film is that maybe it does work better for adults than for kids. As we said, there is a lot of politics happening in the relationship at the heart of this film that maybe works a lot better for adults than for kids and every so often the film having to go oh be your guest be your guest we're gonna do a song so the kids don't get bored and they'll all sing along Uh, feels like hey maybe this is a film that you know kids can get something out of but that actually is maybe made for a different audience than that and I mean, I loved this film. I loved it as a kid. I love it now. But I was so blown away by so many elements of this going back to it. And I think this is going to be a full five star for me. I just think it's an absolute banger. It does feel of a piece with Sleeping Beauty to me. I don't know if I'd say it's as good as or better than Sleeping Beauty, but I think it does deserve to be mentioned in the same breath. And that's a pretty high compliment on the Disneyversity podcast. I mean, you will have to make that decision in our wrap-up episode <laughs> for this era. We've so got you've got you've got a long time to think about that. Yeah, this is I'm going the full five stars as well. Yeah. It's like you know, I've said that I love Pinocchio because it takes everything that Snow White did and just improves on it in every single way. And I think this more or less does that for both the Little Mermaid and the Rescuers Down Under. Right? It keeps everything that worked about either of those movies and brings it both together as one. You've got the kind of groundbreaking 3D, 2D hybrid visuals of Rescuers Down Under, but implemented in a much more tangible and impressive way. And you've got even better songs, even better story. I was going to say better characters. I don't know. That's a bit more debatable. But in all of those categories, it at least matches and often exceeds The Little Mermaid. So yeah, five stars, perfect movie can't wait to see where it ends up on my final ranking okay then now it's time for the section of the show we call lasting legacy because a disney movie is never just a disney movie and in the world of straight to dvd sequels theme parks live action remakes crossover movies and more there's a whole universe for each character and there is one hell of a lasting legacy for beauty and the beast i'd imagine sam even just typing the film name into disney plus brought up a couple of other animated Beauty and the Beast things that I assumed were like series or 20-minute specials, and I clicked on them, and they were full-on movies. Something like Beauty and the Beast, Winter, Fun in the Snow, something like that. What what are we talking here? Yeah, so there are two feature-length quote-unquote movies. <laughs> Loose definition of the word? Yeah, I mean, God, that were follow-ups to Beauty and the Beast. I think this is the biggest gulf between the quality of the movie and the quality of the sequels that we've seen and possibly will ever see. 
one of these movies is the worst thing I've had to watch for this podcast. <laughs> easily which one the winter fun in the snow or the other one that the description is like it's three episodes of a tv show squished together yeah yeah it's it, it was that one so all right okay backing up a little bit two movies the enchanted christmas and bell's magical world both of them are set during the movie we've seen it before when they want to keep the characters in that state that they were in when people fell in love with them in the film we just make a midquel As we've already mentioned, the movie does not leave much room for, for example, the celebration of Christmas during the two-day time span across which it takes place. Which also, if we worked out that it's also the Beast slash the Prince's birthday, he was born around Christmas time. I mean, it's snowing, but other than that, like, unless... No, it's impossible. It's impossible that any of these events are canon to this movie in either of these sequels, there's no way. So, with that in mind, The Enchanted Christmas opens with a framing device set after the movie where the human servants are celebrating Christmas and reminiscing about last Christmas and all the crazy adventures that we had then. So, the Beast hates Christmas. Shock horror. Not a fan. He hates everything. He hates every day. Well, he really hates Christmas, Ben, because... As a flashback reveals to us, he was turned into the beast on Christmas. <laughs> what? That's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's just such a random, extraneous piece of lore that it just doesn't hold up to the slightest bit of scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> well, not least because we see him in flashback and he looks a lot older than 10. Yeah, he's a 10-year-old on Christmas. It's basically Home Alone. He refuses to let a stranger into his house. So he has banned the celebration of Christmas, but Belle kind of wants to reignite that, and all of her object friends agree. So they go and get the Christmas decorations down from the attic. The Christmas decorations, of course, are all alive. Okay? Oh, God. <laughs> but the Beast has locked them in a box in the attic oh. for ten years. The attic of the West Wing? Uh, Yeah, whatever. So the baubles are children. He's locked like 20 children in a box in the attic. The The angel, speaking of Stephen Sondheim, the angel is voiced by the angel of my heart, Bernadette Peters, Sondheim all-star who was in Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park with George. And she doesn't get a whole lot to do in this movie, but it's nice to hear her voice doing her silly French accent that she does in Sunday in the Park with George. Anyway, that is sort of the B-plot of this movie, is the Christmas stuff. The main thrust is Beauty and the Beast's budden romance, which is threatened by a new character who, again, implicitly has been there all along in the movie, but we only just meet him in this midquel. I can't believe I get to say this. An evil CGI pipe organ voiced by Tim Curry. Oh, okay, now you're winning me round. Now you're making me want to watch Belle's Magical Christmas, or whatever it's called. Yeah, I can confirm what we're all thinking. Yes, the organ is sexy. <laughs> he's got that <laughs> He's got that Tim Curry purr, you know? I can't do a great Tim Curry. So the organ wants to make sure that Bell never breaks the curse on the beast because he wants to keep the beast as a tortured, miserable beast so that he still wants to go to the organ room and listen to the organ play emo organ music while he cries. (laughs) 
It's such a bizarre villain motivation. He's essentially Beast's, like, jealous emo boyfriend. <laughs> or, like, his friend who's kind of in love with him and he's jealous of this woman who's come to take him away. It's very, like, oh, forget about her, Beast. Just come to my room where we'll listen to sad music together and cry. That was more Alan <laughs> I was going to say that was, like, Curry. Snake. <laughs> oh, Sneaky Rickman. God, what happens in the end? So he gets really angry at the climax and plays the organ so hard that the house starts to crumble. Um, but he, he pulls himself away from the wall on which he's affixed and kind of falls flat on his face and gets, I guess, like crushed to death. It's kind of a confusingly staged sequence. But yeah, great <laughs> villain. <laughs> Love a bit of Tim Curry. Absolutely off the wall, literally. <laughs> plot for this movie and i've barely even touched on the christmas aspect but oh yeah so that's the enchanted christmas and that one's okay that's like a decent two-star movie (laughs) bell's magical world as you suggested is three episodes of a scrap tv show that have been jammed together and sold to children as a movie it feels exploitative. They haven't even tried to hide it. They have title cards for these three stories and everything. Like, they were literally making a Beauty and the Beast TV show, decided not to make a Beauty and the Beast TV show because you can't make a Beauty and the Beast TV show. It just doesn't work. They're in a house the whole time. The premise does not allow for new locations or characters and villains. If you compare it to the movies that had successful TV shows like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Tarzan, they exist in these expansive worlds where you can bring in loads of different characters. This does not. You are limited to what you have in the movie and whatever random new additions you can pull out, like the Piano Man, or in this case, there's like a dictionary character and a quill, just these characters that suck. The Piano Man, Billy Joel? (laughs) God, I wish. So... These stories all involve Beast just being awful because they can't redeem the character or they'd step on the movie's toes. So every story, which is going to be an episode of a TV show, but which feels even more mind-numbing in the context of them all being jammed together into a movie, is just about the Beast being a dick. And then at the end, he kind of stops, he kind of gets a bit nicer, but not completely because then would reach the end of the movie Beauty and the Beast because they can't actually fall in love. It does not work. It doesn't work as a show. It doesn't work as a movie. Episode one, Belle and the Beast learn to apologize and forgive each other. Snooze. Episode two, Fifi the Feather Duster thinks that Lumiere is having an affair with Belle. (laughs) Wait, I thought Lumiere was already having an affair with the Feather Duster. That's how that's played. So Fifi tries to cheat on Lumiere with Cogsworth and Cogsworth's not having any of it because he's a bit of a fuggy-duddy. That's an episode of a TV show. Episode three, Beast bangs his head when trying to chase a baby bird out the house. (laughs) (laughs) And when he wakes up, he's obsessed with birds. Like, he hates birds, but then he bangs his head and now he loves birds. So he captures the baby bird and enslaves it and forces it to sing for him. Oh, God. Well, he's kind of obsessed with birds in this film. He's like catching birds and I feel like there's whole bits with birds and is this trying to explain that turn <laughs> yeah okay. it's the classic prequel thing is explaining the beast's affinity for birds but like these three events and the other events they can't fit and it's repetitive and it's 
shockingly badly animated. This should not have been released, and I don't like saying that because people did work on it, but this should not have been released as a movie. It doesn't work. It's rubbish. It's definitely the worst movie I've watched. I think the previous one was maybe Fox and the Hound 2. This is way worse than that. My word. Okay. Wow, that sounds truly, truly terrible. What else is in this lasting legacy? Is there anything good in the lasting legacy? Okay, so there was a TV show. There was an actual TV show, a live-action TV show. Okay, how did they make that work? So it isn't really canon to the movie at all. It just features the character of Belle and in one episode the character of Gaston. So it's called Sing Me a Story with Belle. And it's a show where Belle, played by a live actress, owns a bookshop and reads stories to modern-day children. Except the stories that she reads are all visualised as old vintage Disney cartoons. Oh, that's cool. So she will tell the kids the story of a Mickey Mouse cartoon or a Silly Symphony cartoon or Little Toot. Yeah, well, Guy, an original Disney Vesti legend. Actually, you said earlier, has Belle ever seen Mickey and the Beanstalk? Because she likes Jack and the Beanstalk. Yes, she has. What? Because she relates the story of Mickey and the Beanstalk to these kids. And this would be great, a great premise. But Belle sings these really chintzy, like, little pop songs over the top of every cartoon. Just, like, narrating the action, removing most of the original audio. So, yeah, not great. Gaston appears in one episode, but none of the other movie characters do. So instead of Lumiere, Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts, we get Harmony the Cat. These are all puppets. Lewis and Carol, the bookworms. See what they did there, Lewis Carroll. And my favourite, low-key Disneyversity legend, Big Book, a book with a moustache. <laughs> oh, he sounds great. Please put a picture of him on Twitter. Yeah, I will, I will. Yeah, so there's that. Um, there was a bunch of video games, so... Beauty and the Beast on the snares involved Beast running around a dungeon punching spiders. Yeah! Which is kind of relatable. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Again, it's like you've got this very limited palette, this very limited world when it comes to Beauty and the Beast. You've got to kind of strain to get a video game in there. And then a company called Sunsoft made two games for the Genesis, Bell's Quest and Roar of the Beast. So you get a play through it as Bell and Beast. In the Bell version, you just wander around the village and the castle doing odd jobs, and there's a kind of a ballroom dancing rhythm mini game. That's kind of cool. In Roar of the Beast, it's like a beat 'em up where the beast fights a different wild animal at the end of every level. So if you'd like to see the beast punch a bear or like a big pig in the middle of his own home <laughs> with no explanation of how it got there, then this is the game for you. Ah, Parks. So a dark ride recently opened at Tokyo Disneyland called Enchanted Tale of Beauty and the Beast. And it's really high-tech and cool. You can watch the ride-throughs on YouTube. The bit where the beast transforms into a prince, I cannot figure out how they do it. It's probably like something obvious and old school, to be honest, but it looks really incredible. So that's called The Enchanted Tale of Beauty and the Beast, which is not to be confused with Enchanted Tales with Belle which is a separate thing in Orlando, where an animatronic Lumiere casts the park guests in an adaptation that he's producing of Beauty and the Beast as a surprise for Belle. So you get to play a character from the movie? Yeah, so he picks kids out of the audience and says, like, all right, you're Cogsworth, you're Belle, you're the Beast, or whatever. And then an actress playing Belle comes in, and they have to act it out for Belle. That's quite cute. That's quite fun. That sounds nice. So since 2012... Fantasyland in Orlando has been remodelled and now features a replica of the village from Beauty and the Beast, including the Be Our Guest restaurant in the castle and Gaston's Tavern. 
the tavern isn't allowed to serve alcohol. <laughs> but if you want to look like you're drinking those Gaston-sized tankards of booze that they're all drinking in the movie, you can get something called Le Fou's Brew, oh. which is apple soda topped with marshmallow foam, oh. so it looks like a frothy pint. It's like the butterbeer in the Harry Potter studio tour and theme parks. They can make it look good. Whether it tastes good yeah. is another matter. That's the important thing. You feel like you're sloshing a pint around with Gaston. Slosh a pint, pint with, with Gaston. Gaston. <laughs> Start a fight with Gaston. Get escorted yeah, he's doing out it. of Disneyland like Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last park's thing. There is a Beauty and the Beast sing-along attraction in Epcot, which is an abridged version of the movie... From the point of view of LeFou. You get to see the whole thing from LeFou's point of view, which I think is really cool. Like, they wanted to make a shorter version of the movie you can sing along to, but they didn't just cut loads of stuff out. They made a whole new animation for this, and it's all about your favourite character and mine, LeFou. In which it turns out, maybe this will make you feel better about LeFou, it turns out that he was trying to get Bell and the Beast together the whole time. He was working against Gaston, so you see scenes that you don't see in the movie, like him cooking the food that they eat in Be Our Guest, him sewing Belle's dress and he tries the dress on, and him playing violin during the ballroom dancing. So I don't know. It's... It's a creative idea. It's cool. Yeah, it is. Okay, that's everything I've got on here except for the live action remake, which we've kind of touched upon. You don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> The one kind of major note I've got from this is there's a deleted scene from that movie which answers a few questions that you might have about this movie where in the big fight at the end, LeFou meets a new character called Monsieur Toilette, who is the toilet. (laughs) Oh, God. No, I don't like where this is going. You can watch these on YouTube. So the next scene you see is like LeFou leaving the toilet covered in matter and looking deeply traumatised. And then in the party at the end, he reunites with the now-human Monsieur Toilette, played by Stephen Merchant. Oh, that's random. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So I think that, had that been included, I might have looked slightly more fondly on this movie. But yeah, we touched on it already. It's not the best. I think the object characters, and actually the CGI on the beast as well, just can't be as expressive is what we're getting that original movie. I'll tell you what, I was watching bits of this, though, the other day in preparation again. The Gaston sequence works Mm. because that's a dance with people and it's always fun to watch a bunch of people do a cool choreographed song and dance. But when it's Be Our Guest, because it's this, like, stiffly animated, rigid object, there's nothing really spectacular about it. I will say as well, I like Emma Watson as Belle. I think she's a decent Belle. It's worth it for the pictures of Dan Stevens behind the scenes playing the Beast in his massive grey mocap suit on weird stilts skulking around trying to look vaguely like the Beast on set. It's hilarious. The other thing this film gave us is it gave me personally the opportunity to very briefly interview Alan Menken. When I was at the Evening Standard, I interviewed Bill Condon about the film. I went to a junket at a hotel. That's how these things work. They like hire out a floor of a hotel and there's different people in different rooms doing interviews. I went to interview Bill Condon and then the PRs said, oh, and you're in Alan Menken next. 
I had not been given an interview with Alan Menken. I did not know I was interviewing Alan Menken. It wasn't something that had been spoken about before. I had done no preparation whatsoever. It was probably one of the absolute worst interviews I've ever done in my life because I was just running on nothing. This was an interview that I wasn't prepared for in any sense. But I was like, I'm not going to say no to going and being in a room with Alan Menken. And so we had, it was like all of five minutes, but he was sat at a piano and we just waffled to Beauty and the Beast for a bit. And he was like playing the piano while he was doing it. And I would love to interview him now, like all the stuff that we've spoken about and my changed relationship with those films and those songs. I would love, I have so many questions for Alan Menken now, but I can't tell you the panic (laughs) of somebody saying, now you've got an interview with this person and you're like, okay but it was alan menken in a room with a piano and i wasn't going to say no so that probably exists on the internet somewhere and i kind of hope not because as i said i think it was quite bad as far as interviews go but as a memory i will hold on to it i will as well i love that story (laughs) speaking of memories one very last thing do you remember the 21st night of september yes it was just the other day sam when they announced (laughs) a few years ago a prequel Disney Plus series based on the movie called Little Town, starring Luke Evans and Josh Gad as Gaston and LeFou. I do, and it was going back and forth for years, and it was happening, and then it wasn't happening, and at the moment, I think it's not happening, but they all hoped it would happen. Yeah. I was reading the Wikipedia for this to try and figure out whether it's happening or not happening, and I came across what might be my favourite line on the entirety of Wikipedia. In February 2022... Rita Ora joined the cast. Later that same month, Disney Plus passed on the project. (laughs) Well, who knows if those two things are connected. We'll let you guys figure that one out. And that is it for this week's bumper-sized class. Now, I know it feels like we've really only just begun the Renaissance era, and the good news is we have. There is still plenty more to come. But as I mentioned at the very start of this recent run, and as we've brought up in this episode, I'm about to get married. So that means we're going to have another short break. We promise an actual short break this time, not a surprisingly long break like our last one. Uh, But we're going to be stopping so I can get married and have a honeymoon. And then we'll be back with plenty more Disney magic in the run-up to Christmas. Uh, We have some really exciting guests lined up, more incredible movies coming your way. When we're back, our next proper seminar will be another all-out Disney banger. If you've been wishing for us to do Aladdin, we're about to make that one come true. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating of some kind, we'll put on a very special dinner and a show just for you. As long as you sign a waiver for any sentient forks can-canning their way into your eyeballs, we cannot be held responsible for injuries on that front. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye, I'll see you at the wedding. I'll be bringing an exciting guest of my own. Oh, it's a snake. Little little, little (laughs) snakey guy? Little snake at the wedding? Congratulations, Ben. (laughs) Well, now I'm even more excited. And it is goodbye, or should that be au revoir for moi. Thanks very much for listening. Catch you next time. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.